This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Playing historical NPCs. The flattening of cinematography. And my 2022 Powell's Book Raid. I'll totally take you down in God's Forge. No way, my Apocalypse Titan is too powerful for your puny Crystal Phoenix. What you don't know is that my Great House's special ability is to always beat you! Ha ha! Oh wait, you win. That was seriously fast. Yep, that's because of the simultaneous play in God's Forge. And also, because of my Great House's special power. Isn't that from the new expansion for God's Forge? Yep, and you can get yours too on Kickstarter on November 8th. God's Forge 2nd Edition, plus two new expansions, Return of the Dragon Gods, and Twilight of the Great Houses. You are a great mage battling for the last reservoir of the magic element Ethereum. Craft creations and cast spells to defeat your rivals, leaving you as Master of the God's Forge. With quick and fun simultaneous play. Starts on Kickstarter from November 8th. Ends on Kickstarter December 8th. Learn more at atlas-games.com. Or follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the gaming hut. And uh, let's go through those miniatures that are thumping around. There's, well, there's uh, Napoleon uh, Bonaparte. You can see he's got his little hand in his jacket. There's Alexander the Great. He's got a sword ready to kill somebody, possibly a close personal friend. And there's Peter Frampton coming alive. Why, Robin, we must be in an installation of the Gaming Hut where we are answering a question from beloved Patreon backer Neil Barnes in Ray how to actually play historical figures at the table. What do we do if we don't have time to read a full biography? What are the traits that actually make an impression on the players? And uh, from that, I assume that Neil begins by wanting to know how do uh, GMs play historical figures at the table? Obviously, if you are the player then playing a historical figure is another thing. But we can get to that maybe later on in the answer. But Robin, have you portrayed historical figures as a GM with with aplomb, with effect? I, I would like to think with aplomb, uh, sure. And so I think the answer is basically to start thinking of them as if you were fictionalizing them to show up as supporting characters. Because of course, they're not player characters, they're not mm-hmm. protagonists. They just show up for a scene or two. Napoleon is not Elminster. Yes. And... Therefore, like any supporting character, you need to know one or two vivid things about them. And it helps to, you know, sort of, you you don't have to read an entire biography of someone. And in fact, anybody complicated, that's going to, I think, lead you down the primrose path of trying to do too many things and just come up with, for the purpose of this story, what is the most important single trait about this character that the players are going to want to interact with. And that is exists in a tension between historically who they really were and also what they need to do in the storyline. And also probably, I guess there's, there's a, this, this set of poles has turned into a triangle all of a sudden. Also what the player's preconceptions of who this person is, right? Because if you're doing 
for example, Teddy Roosevelt, you probably want to do the sort of standard Teddy Roosevelt impression that you see in movies and stuff, which I think may not actually have been what he sounded like, for example. But that doesn't matter because you're doing a fun, vivid version of them. And if it's a little bit on the cartoony side, I think that's all to the good because you're trying to make a vivid, immediate impression. And so, you know, when Lincoln shows up, you know, give him the good old honest Abe thing or in a more serious game. Oh, well, this is the depressive Abe Lincoln who is, you know, covered in shadow. And so find one thing about them that you want, want to emphasize. And like anything, don't engage in overexposition that is irrelevant. Don't stop the action to give the players the entire Wikipedia entry on this person because that's going to slow down play. And also it's going to wind up taking you out of the the story. And the point of having them in the story is to enrich the story and to move the story in a direction, either, you know, narratively or emotionally. And suddenly, you know, stopping to read the footnotes is a great way to break narrative in anything, especially at the table. So in my experience, historical characters break out into historical characters. The players already know who they are. And so when Wyatt Earp showed up in my uh, Unknown Armies game, the player characters knew exactly who Wyatt Earp was, and they further knew that this was going to be the version of Wyatt Earp that is both historically true and more fun, which is the best gunfighter in the city, the one who is just not going to get killed if you draw down on him. And so that, uh, you know, talk about traits that make an impression on the players, they, they knew to be on their very best player behavior when they were around Wyatt Earp. That same game had lots of Western gunfighter type characters that they didn't necessarily know who they were. And so you need to, as you say, pick an emotional tenor. Are they hot headed? Are they calm? Uh, what do they want in the scene? The same question that you have for every NPC. And then every so often you can, you know, have some sort of indication if you want that, oh, this is also a historical character. It, it took, I think, two sessions for the characters, for the players rather, to figure out that Bob, the friendly art student they met in New York, was Robert W. Chambers. And that was with, you know, he he acted like Robert W. Chambers, you know, would act, sort of a, a bluff, hearty guy. But every so often he would talk about his his weird dreams and visions. And then eventually the penny drops and the players are like, oh, that's that's Robert Chambers. Right. That was because that was great. He's an example of someone that nobody really has an impression of Robert W. Chambers. And, you know, even what you've come up with is sort of a projection because... Mm -hmm there's, you know, really very little known about him. And so that's, and I guess that's the other thing is, is that the further away someone is from a set of preconceptions, meaning are they in a bunch of movies mm -hmm. <laughs> that the players have likely seen? If not, you've got a lot of leeway and you're free to make them however you want them to be. So if you needed Robert W. Chambers to be you know, a grouchy drunk, you can do that because mm -hmm. you know, it's not even like, you know, you're releasing a film that Robert W. Chambers historians will then come along and correct. So the less well-known someone is, the more uh, freedom you have to, to mess with them. And then also, of course, you may well be nerd troping what's going on. So, you know, if Abe Lincoln is in contact with the serpent people, that may have changed him in, in some way or another. And again, I guess really the only threat that you have to worry about is that you will have a pedantic player or perhaps a very helpful player who researches in between sessions and comes back uh, with a whole bunch of, you know, Abe Lincoln facts that somehow leave out the whole serpent people angle and, you know, give you a contradictory bit of 
information that kind of, you know, would wreck your plot were you fool enough to pay heed to it. Yeah, and and again, those players, as you corrected yourself, are often helpful because players generally want to help the game move along. And certainly if they don't, we've discussed many, many different versions of that story. But for example, by uh, I introduced Gertrude Bell into my current campaign as a previous incarnation of one of the superheroes, Darcy Ross, in excitement, rushed off and has now read Gertrude Bell's diary. She knows more about Gertrude Bell, I guarantee, than I do at this point. But if I mention something, she then offers a helping anecdote or a corroboration of Gertrude Bell's presence in her head, rather than, a, ooh, that doesn't really strike me as what Gertrude Bell would do. Or if she does, she says, that's odd. I wonder why Gertrude Bell is forgetting this thing that happened to Gertrude Bell. It must be part of the story. And then the two of us can sort of yes and or improv it if that's what needs to happen, right? Right. Also, I, I guess another fear that you want to look after is that the historical figures kind of not only take over the scene, but take over the story, right? You've already mm -hmm. mentioned, you know, the, the Elminster syndrome. And it may be that they will sort of take on too much weight. And so another question is, when you're creating a scene, do you really need a heavy-duty historical figure in it? Or is that going to sort of skew things? So if Abe Lincoln's role in the story is just to give a bit of information or an assignment or something, and the rest of your scenario is not particularly a Blinkeny. You may choose, in fact, to have, you know, his personal secretary is the one who gives you the briefing because it just his appearance in the storyline is too heavy a color for what it is that you want to do. So although it's super fun for historical figures to show up, I guess the way to flip this advice on his head, his head is if you want to bring in a historical figure, make sure they have something super cool to do. Don't give them a, an essentially a walk-on role where, oh yeah, they're there at the party and they don't really have anything to say to you. Make sure that there's a plot justification for their presence. And if you can't possibly come up with one, you know, leave them in the background where, you know, you see Lincoln up on the rotunda or, you know, you find some documents of a Gertrude Bell, but you don't meet her. And the thrill, the thrill of Lincoln in the game is often just the sort of shiver the frisson of knowledge that you are actually in a game that has Abraham Lincoln in it, not that you're sort of touching him in some way, not that Abraham Lincoln is needed to be there and say, as you know, gentlemen, you know, a nation thus constituted cannot survive. You don't need Lincoln to give you the briefing. You can have John Hay give you the briefing. But when you, you know, meet the man, his name is John Hay, and he takes you through a back door and you realize you're in the White House then the penny drops and you're like, oh my gosh, this is really important. This is really cool. Lincoln is like somewhere in this building and you get almost the same visceral thrill that you would get of having Lincoln himself show up. And you can always save that if you really do need a scene that, that really has to carry some weight and really has to mean something dramatically, or you've got a really, you know, a, a final moment. Maybe you want Lincoln to be pinning the medals on the characters at the very end, a la Princess Leia, or maybe what you want is for the game to sort of be foreshadowing, you know, the assassination because of those lizard people out there messing with things. And the players realize that one of their goals is to actually in game, get a face to face with Lincoln so they can warn him about the serpent people's badness. And that 
becomes a goal in itself and a thing to root for and to, and to push for. Players, in my experience, often, you know, uh, try and play on the GM in whatever way they can. And certainly my players know my favorite historical figures by now. And if there's an opportunity for them to bring them in, they think, great, this is a scene nothing bad can happen in. Ken would never endanger Louisa May Alcott by having monsters attack while we're talking to Louisa May Alcott. Let's just, you know, have that happen. But, but of course you would, because that's the best thing <laughs> to do with historical figures is to make them the MacGuffin, right. make them the thing being rescued. So they have to rescue Louisa May Alcott from the monsters or, uh, you know, as in a recent game that I ran, well, not so recent now, but they had to, you know, save Lester Pearson from Dracula so that he could solve the Suez crisis. And they were super invested in that. And so make them central to the part. And if we look for the media property that does this all the time. Of course, it's Doctor Who, where mm -hmm. every season, usually episode two or three, there's a meet a famous historical person and save them from Cyberman or whatever the, the creature is. Mm -hmm. So that's the, you know, the absolute best thing is to make them the person that you're trying to save. And, you know, in the upcoming big giant campaign that I'm writing for the Yellow King in Paris, 1895, the one that centers around a big historical figure, you're trying to save her from the bad guys. And Another one with a lesser known historical figure. She's also menaced by something. So uh, that's the the obvious, exciting, fun thing to do. And, and you know, that's the thing about tabletop role playing. It's if you prevent your players from having the fun, obvious thing, you're cheating them. Do the obvious thing with this. Yeah, I think you bring up Yellow King and that's another reason and opportunity to bring in not just a historical character, but maybe loads of historical characters if you are trying to establish a specific historical milieu, if I'm artists in 1895 Paris, I absolutely want to meet all the artists that I, that I can, right? I want to hang out with, you know, Pissarro or whoever is, is painting around then. I don't want to just have Jacques the NPC. I want that to be Bougereau. I don't want just some, you know, random person. I want Sarah Bernhardt. I want, I want to be in the Belle Epoque. That's why I'm playing a Belle Epoque game. Similarly, if you're playing, you know, in a game that is set in, maybe a game that stops off in 1960s San Francisco, you don't need to meet Ken Kesey. But if you're playing a game that's set in 1960s San Francisco, Ken Kesey should absolutely be a major character because he was a major character. You're, you're in Chicago in the 20s. Al Capone should always, the, the threat should be, he should be a wandering monster. He should be the damn owlbear. Any moment Al Capone could show right. up and ruin your life. That's part of why you're playing a gangster in Chicago in the 20s, not a gangster in Jacksonville, Florida in the 20s, where you can just make up a gangster and he was probably just as bad. Yeah, sure. And in the Los Angeles film noir Cthulhu Confidential scenario that I wrote, one of the people who has information is Mickey Cohen, who's mm -hmm. a real gangster. Yep. And in almost every case, they're terrified of Mickey Cohen in a way that they would not be a, of a fictional gangster. And he is, because this is gumshoe, you can make any historical figure key to the action in gumshoe by giving them information that the players need, because getting information is the core activity of that game. So, you know, Lincoln having a clue, Louisa Malcott having information, Robert W. Chambers, Mickey Cohen, whatever it is, or offering cooperation. That's an easy peasy way to put them in the narrative. And again, you just like any scene where there's information, find the reason why they're a little reluctant to give you the, the information and tie it into the one thing that you want to put across about, you know, whoever the character is. So if it's Abe Lincoln, he doesn't want to seem 
dishonest, but uh, you have to reassure him that he he won't seem that way if you give him information and, and so forth. Uh, well, one thing that historical figures, though, can are, are noted for is getting out of segments when they've run a little too long. And that's another thing we can rely on them for. So let's follow, I don't know, Teddy Roosevelt through this next commercial. Track down foul sorcerers in a corrupt city. Clamber through underground ruins. Infiltrate the treasure vault of your decadent rival. Backstab your way to power and influence. In Swords of the Serpentine. The gumshoe game of swords and sorcery, investigation and intrigue. By Kevin Culp and Emily Dresner. And your mighty feud pals at Pelgrane Press. Strap on your blades for danger and forbidden knowledge. Tap into the corrupting source of sorcery for knowledge and power. Sharpen your tongue for the rigors of social combat. Prophesy secrets from the past, present, or future. Seek glory, justice, or the chance to live another day on the winding streets of Eversink. That's Swords of the Serpentine. Available now from Pelgrane Press. The whir of the projector. Oh, no, that's the whir of the Xbox. The smell of popcorn. No, that's just the smell of microwave popcorn. We make our way down the aisle to the set. No, we're just on our couch. Well, we're home. We're home on our couch. I guess let's turn on the Cinema Hut, see what's on. Oh, there's a, there's a multitude of choices in the Cinema Hut. I'm going to spend all evening just deciding which one. There are a lot of choices of what to watch, yes, as you point out, but many of them, Robin... Look the same. Cinematography, despite all of our new gidgety gadgety tricks, seems pretty much the same on every Netflix movie, for example. Are we sneakily back in the studio era, but only the bad part? Are we once more under the reign of a modern day Natalie Kalmus? Question mark. I, I think arguably uh, we are, which uh, requires us then to explain who Natalie Kalmus was, and then we can come back to the modern uh, streaming era. So Natalie Kalmus was the co-founder of Technicolor, uh, which goes all the way back to the late teens. The first Technicolor film was, you may be surprised to know, in 1917. And with her then-husband, Herbert Kalmus, she helped develop the technology and also then became the technical consultant that films that use the Technicolor process had to hire and have on set for every film. And she got to approve uh, not only the way things were shot and lit, but like the production design, the colors that were being photographed. And this happened even though in 1922, she uh, secretly divorced Herbert Kalmus. They continued to live in adjoining apartments for uh, quite a while. Uh, but she was sort of the, the bane of filmmakers who wanted to shoot color film. There were other color film processes, but this was the the dominant, this was the big kahuna of uh, color film. And she had a real bugbear about making sure that things were in neutral colors. So if you gave her what she wanted in her approval of the film that was necessary to use the technicolor process, she would like a lot of browns and beiges and neutrals and you know, pastel. So if there's a green, it can't be a vivid green. Of course, a lot of filmmakers kicked back about this because their whole argument was, well, if we're going to use color, I want to use vivid color. Mm -hmm. In a stage play, I would use 
vivid colors. And she said, but that's not realistic. And they would say, it's Hollywood. <laughs> it's not supposed to be realistic. So she sort of had a, a reign of, of terror from 1934 to 1949 when she served as a Technicolor consultant. And therefore, she finally broke from Technicolor when she named them as a co-defendant in an alimony suit. And then filmmakers were free. And so if you remember a beautiful Technicolor film and its extremely vivid use of color, that's because you're remembering one from the heyday of Technicolor from the 50s and the early 60s once she no longer got to approve everything. But until then, she sort of imposed a consistent look on color films throughout all the different studios. So there wasn't just one studio that had this look. Color film did. And... This is why I think she's sort of analogous to what's going on today, because there are demands that not just Netflix, but other streaming services impose for particular reasons. And I think, yes, indeed, things do kind of all look the same now. And there are other reasons for that, however, as well. So I think maybe, Ken, you could start by kind of enumerating why what we're looking at is suddenly much more uniform than it would have been even in the 60s or 70s. Every era has a look, but there's also lots of things that depart from that look, and it's less so right now. I mean, there's a couple of, of, of reasons. First of all, Netflix, as you say, insisted on, you know, only using certain cameras for movies made for Netflix because they wanted to be able to control every aspect of the digital production. Obviously, nothing is shot on film for Netflix, so already you've lost a huge wave of possibility. Everything has to be shot in 4K, because they're selling a 4K subscription service. Right. So, and ironically, then compressing the hell out of the 4K. But. Yeah, right. Yeah. And then pushing it through to my television, which is not 4K. But the result of that is that you get visual artifacts of that translation that result in sort of super visible, like seam marks on clothes or the layers of makeup become more visible, things like that. The color palettes you'd think would be just as cheap in 4K or just as available in other things. But this is where you start realizing that because the streaming model economically can't recover any costs after it's been shot and then shown on Netflix, it doesn't go to DVD. There isn't a, a long tail anywhere. It's just on Netflix forever. That means that all the stars and all the directors and all the uh, above the line talent, as they're called, have to get compensated up front. So, where, you know, Robert De Niro might make a movie for, let's say, $10 million, but a share of the, the box office and a share of the DVD and a share of all the long tail. He doesn't have that now. So his agent says, if you want Robert De Niro in your movie, now it's $25 because he's losing all that income. All of the above-the-line talent gets that negotiated, which means that the cinematographer has to work cheap. You don't have as much time to spend color correcting. You don't have as much time to spend, you know, setting up the lighting. And often if you're shooting digitally, the lighting is not going to be necessarily what a cinematographer who's worked for 50 years is used to. So, you know, they're already doing sort of play it safe setups and play it safe shots. Everyone has to film faster because your days of shooting have to be compressed to save that money because you got to pay all the above the line talent. The result is everything winds up basically shot, color graded, and lit like it was being made for a television show in 1965, maybe. Right. And, and that's what a lot of these things are as television shows. Yeah. Right? On one level, it's odd to complain that, you know, the Sandman 
looks like a typical television show when, well, it is a typical television yeah. show now. It's absolutely the, you know, default TV show now is the Sandman. And other factors that are causing this sort of uniform look are B, just the amount of production has expanded to an incredible degree. I think we're headed toward a contraction mm-hmm. and soon we'll be able to catch up on all the other, on all the series and movies that we have meant to watch for years because there are going to be fewer of them. But the number of cinematographers that are called for and all of the crews that support them is bigger than it's always been. So that the amount of training and experience somebody goes through before they start shooting as a DP on a TV show or, or even a movie is less than it's ever been. Another issue is, and this even goes, I think, into uh, into Marvel, uh, it very much has a house look, and its house look is not all that different from the Netflix look, for example, in its dependence on, on darkness, because you also are shooting, if something has obvious CG in it, which, you know, so many of the top things do these days, you have to have a look that any CG house anywhere in the world can suddenly plug into, right? If If I you know, I'm running an animation studio and my job is to make the Raven for the Sandman. It's much easier if I can just sort of assume, oh, it's going to be kind of the default look and I can put the Raven in that default look. Whereas, you know, there are even CG films that are have very distinctive appearances that uh, violate all of these tendencies that we're talking about, but they're the exception because that again requires a lot more coordination and with time being of the essence as always in a film production it's easier to just go oh yeah it's this sort of standard dark mush uh, that you see uh in an mcu thing or in the sandman you know those two things although they're different studios you know that the look is not all that dissimilar and a lot of it is because they i think have demonstrated to their satisfaction that no one actually really cares we are really just there to see hulk and we don't care that we can't actually see Hulk. We can pretend we're seeing Hulk. So in a sort of a way, we're back around to not just, you know, the great Technicolor era or the pre-great Technicolor era, but we're down to, you know, the serials era where people just want to see Flash Gordon. It doesn't matter if you can see the wires, put it on the screen, let's go. And the difference being the guy who built the Flash Gordon rocket model might have actually worked longer hours than the guy who animated the spaceship that's, you know, fighting Spider-Man or whatever. It's just a, a different universe in terms of, of what the audience expectation is. In the serials era, they were making it for kids. It wasn't the real movie. No one really cared. Draw your own conclusions to what Marvel thinks of the audience now. And again, you know, these are big production lineups. But back in the day, in this in the studio era, whether people were fighting with Natalie Kamas or doing a beautiful noir photography. There's also an extremely small fraternity of uh, cinematographers, right? That they could, they could all fit in a room together Mm -hmm. and they would work for years and years before finally, you know, beginning to shoot things. And that began to break down uh, in the sixties where people could just pick up cameras and do things. And then there was a whole other completely unrelated, beautiful style came out of that, which was influenced by uh, Eastern Europe, for example. But, you know, I think, we're very much back to sort of a studio era where there's an industrial process uh, and, you know, Ted Sarandos and uh, Kevin Feige and other top people behind different streaming ventures or sub ventures. It's back in, in the studio era in, in a lot of ways, except uh, as you suggest that the, uh, 
the talent are all free agents who uh, get a big chunk of the budget right off the top. Yeah. And, and again, the apprenticeship system that it did exist in the studio era also seems to have broken down because the unions are all crippled now. So back in the day, you could start out as an editor for Val Luton and work your way up to director for Val Luton. Nowadays, that's not as clear a, a career path as it used to be. You might be an editor and because you're basically editing, you know, big, long special effects extravaganzas forever, you finish one, you're on to the next one as an editor. There's no time to improve. And there's certainly very little challenge in terms of creative editing, because what you're editing has to fit with the cartoon. It has to fit with the CGI. You can't suddenly have all the brilliant, clever shots that you would be able to put into a real film still happen when you're going to set it off to the other side of the world and be animated for the last 45 minutes. Sam Raimi, you know, with the best will in the world could only make the most recent Doc Strange movie look like a Sam Raimi movie about, you know, one minute out of 20. And that's even back in the day, you know, you, you had more options because you had fewer moving parts. So a real craftsman could use those few moving parts and put them together in a way that provided individual artistic expression nowadays there isn't time and if there was time you just don't have the opportunity it's it's not allowed to do that so i think next time uh, if you're looking at a tv show and it looks kind of like a bunch of other tv shows uh, you'll know what happened and if you see something that does have its own distinct consistent look where the production design and the lighting all interact you can be sure that whoever did that went to a certain amount of effort to make that happen and is to be applauded for it and on that note i think it's time for us to uh stop talking about movies perhaps i don't know start talking about books mm, books you say The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Protect this podcast and its impeccable Teddy Roosevelt impression alongside such bully, bully Patreon backers as... Dwayne Krigulski. Chris Hooning. Adam Balderstone. James Stewart. And Ben Brigoff. The groaning of Ken Shells. The rustling of the packing material. The opening of the boxes. Tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's bookshelf, which of course is the piece of furniture that houses all of the many tomes and books that Ken acquires 
on his travels purely for your vicarious enjoyment. Ken, we assure you, gets no pleasure out of this, and he's doing it only for you people. And so I'm sure you'll be grateful to know that he's back from uh, Powell's in Portland with the result of his annual Portland raid, his 2020 raid in conjunction with the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival. And you got a big old pile of stuff, so let's get to it. And we're going to start with the ancient world, which is still on your thoughts, of course. So we've got Greek and Roman artillery, 399 BC to AD 363 by Duncan B. Campbell. Couldn't be more straightforward than that. Couldn't be more straightforward. As people might suspect, this is an Osprey book. There is actually more to be said on Greek and Roman artillery than this slim volume has to offer, but this will at least get you the high points, the covers, and lots of little diagrams and math for how far it could shoot what, all the sort of nitty-gritty details that will let you once more realize that Hollywood catapults don't exist or are medieval weapons that they put in Greek times to make the battles more exciting. And, well, if uh, Ridley Scott can do it, why can't I? That's what I ask you. Next, we come to The Rise and Fall of Alexandria, Birthplace of the Modern Mind, Howard Reed and Justin Pollard. Yeah, this is basically, you know, what it says on the back of the book. It is a history of Alexandria. Alexandria is the greatest city in the world, probably, in the Hellenistic era. It is, you know, where the Library of Alexandria is. It's where Jason and the Argonauts was written, is in Alexandria. It's where Hero built his steam spinny thing. You can't really call it an engine because it didn't power much of anything. But they did build something that might have been powered by compressed air. They did build things that were almost robots. And uh, that was pretty good for a bunch of guys with very, very uh, little in the way of metallurgy or um, uh, calculus to work with. And then it also was a sumptuous city of all manner of exciting and crazy cultural events because it's where the uh, pharaoh where it was, the Ptolemies. So you would have things like the Great Parade of Ptolemy Philadelphus, where he took every animal that he could find in his entire empire and marched it up and down the streets with giant statues of the Greek gods, plus Serapis, plus Alexander, plus, oh, look, is that Ptolemy Golly? Look at that. And presumably an example of every animal, right? Not every, right. Not every animal. single animal. No, yeah. they didn't. They'd, they'd stop at one or two, I think. That would be a lot of cat herding. It would be literally a lot of cat herding. But as it was, it was a, a gigantic uh, affair, a huge civic uh, display. Alexandria was also where, for example, the Septuagint, the uh, Hebrew redaction of the Old Testament, the, the sort of the final one, was put down. Who knew that it was in Alexandria, but that's where it was. And then later on, of course, you have it as the sort of center of ferment in early Christianity, which is after my period but is also part of why Alexandria was uh, such a soft egg when the uh, Arabs came to roar through it and uh, burn everything. Now, normally, longtime listeners will know that we don't get to the, the doolally until segment two, but, hmm, th this title is In Shakespeare's Shadow, A Rogue Scholar's Quest to Reveal the True Source Behind the World's Greatest Plays by Michael Blanding. Do I smell... Thin margins? Uh, the margins are, what do I want to say, academically thin. They're prop. This is a relatively proper book. This is not someone else wrote Shakespeare. This argues that Shakespeare took the plots and ideas for his plays not from all over the map, as is often theorized, uh, Holinshed and Plutarch and this and that and the other, but from the works of another playwright named Sir Thomas North, who lived, you know, a couple of decades before him, wrote a bunch of plays. They never went anywhere. The thesis is that Sir Thomas North 
you know, his complete works or his library or whatever fell into Shakespeare's hands. Shakespeare had access to it. And this is about teasing out the commonalities between Sir Thomas North and William Shakespeare and their works. At no point does uh, Michael Blanding or the scholar whose work he is following up on, Dennis McCarthy, say Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare. That would, in fact, be the doolally, as you say. But Shakespeare had a another source for his works, I think, is arguable. And Blanding, a part of this book is also about Shakespeare scholars saying he did not, which I think is, um, uh, first of all, justifiable, because I think if you're a Shakespeare scholar, you basically answer the phone with he did not whenever anyone calls you. But it will be an interesting sort of a look into how unorthodox a theory can be and still be, you know, in a respectable bunch of margins, I guess. Right. So, so it's not unrespectable so much as just the subtitles a little excitable. Exactly. Because they got to sell books, friends. I understand that impulse completely, Ken. Next, we come to The Anarchy, The Relentless Rise of the East India Company by William Dalrymple, an organization I do not associate with anarchy. Yeah, well, that's their point, is that the East India Company did not, in fact, bring order to the Indian subcontinent, that they brought disorder, which is inarguable. They overthrew the Mughal Empire. Conquest tends to be that way. Right, yep. And they did not replace it with anything like the organized sort of British Raj that we think of. That, of course, came after the Sepoy uh, mutiny when India rose in rebellion against the hated British and was promptly stomped down by the hated British and other Indians. And that's when the Raj sort of comes in and they put everything on a a note-keeping basis What goes on under the British East India Company is much more like, you know, if you go to, say, Apple and you say, I'd like to see all the books on your factories in China. And Apple says, you know what is funny about that? And more fun happens uh, in the court. William Dalrymple is a historian of India. He is of the left, I think I can say, and therefore is probably even more anti the British East India Company than the average person. But the British East India Company was probably worse than the average corporation in its effects. So <laughs> I think that's a safe statement to make. Fair enough, uh, William Dalrymple. Fair enough. And it's again, it's part of the era of the British rule that we don't actually see an awful lot about because most of the records and most of the British people were over there post-1857 and when it was actually part of the British Empire and run by you know, Queen Victoria and her dotty civil servants, not by a bunch of dodgy guys who work for banksters in London. Right. And we've got a, a big wadge of espionage coming up. Looks like the uh, spy section was particularly vulnerable to you this time. But it as, was. A, as a transitional uh, item, we have a single crime blotter title, and that is uh, Triangle of Death, the Inside Story of the Triads, the Chinese Mafia. By Frank Robertson. Yeah, this, I, I'm pretty sure that I got this as a more of a historical interest. It's from 1977. So even in those days, this was probably a little fusty. It's certainly fusty now that the triads. Right. Have, in fact, it has to tell you that the triads are Chinese mafia. Exactly. When it was written. So this is before even Posner's book. This is, well, first of all, this is going to be more about what the triads are like in the 60s. So it's going to be more relevant for Fall of Delta Green. And I find that that's often the case, even in very, you'd think, well-organized books, you read, you know, the history of the intelligence community, it's much harder to piece together what it looked like in 1968 than if you go to uh, the book by General McCloskey, The Intelligence Community, written in 1968. They are operating under other constraints, the fact that they're not allowed to admit the NRO exists, for example, 
but they have a better idea of who at the Air Force is in charge of looking into spies than someone writing in the 2000s does or cares about. So this, I suspect, will deal more with what are the triads like in the 60s and early 70s than even the later histories of the triads, which, of course, want to get to the, you know, their current activities, whatever they may be. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was, I fundamentally bought it as a historical text, but if I, I get another couple of cool anecdotes, nothing wrong with that. It's also always good to get a book that corresponds to a particular skill in skill-based systems, particularly ones that are fine-grained. So here we have something to hand the uh, person who's uh, taken three points in cryptography. It's Masked Dispatches, Cryptograms and Cryptology in American History, 1775 to 1900 by Ralph E. Weber. And Ralph E. Weber publishes this sort of lengthy research paper, almost more than a book, under the auspices of your, or rather my, National Security Agency. Also yours, Robin, if you make phone calls in Canada. But um, <laughs> <laughs> the... Uh, if, if you go up far enough, it's all five eyes. Right. This is this is a number of, one of a number of sort of academic dispatches. The CIA has a similar history of intelligence that they put out. This is probably available somewhere on the internet. You could probably pull down a PDF of this as well, because the federal government has a good habit of putting these out on the on the internet. But it is very fun, as you say, to hand it to someone. And for what it is, which is a fairly comprehensive history of 19th century cryptology in America, it's got a lot of you know fun side trails and whatnot. I do not regret paying for this in hard, but if you find it on the internet, I would snap it up then too. Uh, now we come to Strange Intelligence, Memoirs of Naval Secret Service by Hector C. Bywater. How strange is this intelligence? It's so strange, Robin, that it was published in the Daily Telegraph. This was literally, almost literally, boys' own adventures. Hector Bywater was, he was Agent H2O, because his name was Bywater. This is this is what passed for secrecy before World War One. He was a naval intelligence agent who went into Germany to find out about their navy. And between the wars, as the telegraph is trying to sort of maybe ramp up uh, a little bit of Maybe the Germans are are bad uh, sentiment. Bywater is publishing his "Don't worry, we can handle them, boys" uh, attitude, and the stories are probably kernel of truth type thing. But if, as I've mentioned before, every book written by a spy is a lie, this is not just a lie, but a lie intended to sell newspapers and uh, less. So, so readily less. adaptable to role playing, then. Exactly. Yeah, these are sort of the. Um, uh, me and the lads broke into keel and we measured the propellers type adventures, not, you know, about running double agents or anything like that. So now we come to Ian Fleming's Secret War. And unless this is like a 2020 to 2022 book, I think this is one I'm going to place my money on your having already purchased and talked about in the past. Mm. It's by uh, Craig Bell. Well, let's see if I can find a copy. Of Folks, it. this is the exciting sound of Ken actually touching and grabbing his book to see when it was published and see if he already oh, has a copy of it somewhere in his collection. Well, we're not going to learn whether I already have a copy, but it was first published in 2008. Right. So the odds go up. For, for the benefit of those whose curiosity is piqued, whether this is your first or second copy, what is this book? This is a, a, a lot of books have been, have, have been written about Ian Fleming's operations on the Naval uh, War Planning Committee, the Imperial War Plans Group. This basically pulls all of the little anecdotes and, and puts them together into one place. So rather than tease it out of a bunch of different books, this is your one-stop shop for what was Ian Fleming up to 
And it does, yes, have the little bit of a chapter where our buddy Dennis Wheatley shows up and they make things up together about Rudolf Hess. So it's got that element to it. It is, as far as Craig Cabell can say, pretty much the what did you do in the war, daddy, for Ian Fleming and helpful whether you have one or two copies, perhaps, as a right. uh, as a, as a stop. Right. And uh, now we come to what did J. Edgar Hoover do during the war? Because we have Hoover's secret war against Axis spies, FBI counter-espionage during World War II by Raymond J. Batvinus. Well, Raymond J. Batvinus, say what you want about uh, the FBI. Raymond J. Batvinus will have no part of it. Raymond was a supervisory special agent for the FBI and is now the executive director of the J. Edgar Hoover Foundation. So if your theory was Hoover did nothing, Raymond takes issue with that. Raymond is all about, you just don't appreciate J. Edgar Hoover enough, you kids, you long hairs, you punks, you hippies. He saved you from Axis spies. And in fact, the FBI was very active over the whole hemisphere, not just uh, North America, not just uh, United States. And then did have presences in Europe and in Asia, trying to wrest jurisdiction away from the OSS and away from other agencies. Hoover did, again, possibly aided by the fact that the German intelligence apparat in North America was feebler than it was in World War I, but Hoover definitely flipped it, turned it around, and was able to do his job of launching a proper counterintelligence effort in World War II. So this is a sequel to a previous book about the foundation of FBI counterintelligence. This is the specific 1941 to 1945 part of it. And uh, while I assume that there will be the occasional aw shucks moment, by and large, this is the case for the defense of J. Edgar Hoover in the argument that, well, we didn't really need Hoover to be all Hoovery. We could have just bipped along just fine. Well, Back in the day, my friend, that was called defeatism, and Raymond J. Bat Venus will have no part of it. Now we come to Near and Distant Neighbors, a new history of Soviet intelligence by Jonathan Haslam. Uh, how new is this now? It's less new than it was. It came out in 2015. So am I. So yeah, are we so, all. So are we all. Came out in 2015. I put off buying it until I got it remaindered because I have a ton of histories of Soviet intelligence. One of the things that the reviews of this one mention is that even if you've already got, you know, Sword and the Shield, Betrovkin, you've already got the you know, the memoirs, Suvorov and Gordievsky and whatnot, this tries to go around and fill in the blanks. So it talks about Soviet cryptology, which is something that is not usually covered. It talks about aspects of the of the Soviet intelligence effort that are not just Soviet spies in America and Britain that are also Everything else the KGB was up to, aspects of the domestic uh, repression as well. The near neighbors are Soviet citizens and the distant neighbors are foreign citizens, both of which are under the remit of the KGB. So the um, near and distant neighbors sort of goes, tries for a, a, a bigger institutional look. And then Haslam definitely deliberately concentrates on things that aren't in all the other books. So it, it's probably... I think still worth getting, even though it is, as you say, a new history from 2015, as opposed to a new history from now. So when you're trying to track something down and it's not in your other sources, go to this one. Check Haslam. See what's, see what's there. From Soviet intelligence to uh, the CIA, we have the Quiet Americans, four CIA spies at the dawn of the Cold War, a tragedy in three acts 
because we didn't have a long enough subtitle, by Scott Anderson. Yeah, um, this is a... The standard card force in CIA histories is to say, well, the OSS was great and necessary and did good things. And then, you know, your your communists, your Philip Agees and whatnot, will all say, but it was immediately perverted by the banksters and the capitalists and, and turned bad. Other people have to say, well, Stalin was bad, but then they still want to be mad at the CIA. So they then have to say, deposit some sort of moment of fall, right? Imposing a tragic narrative onto a, a tale of absolutely bog-standard bureaucratic screw-around. And in this case, he looks at the lives of uh, Michael Burke, who tried to operate the, the, the rollback operations where you would send exiles back into communist Europe to overthrow or suborn their communist governments. All of those, of course, were doomed from the get-go by Kim Philby, um, uh, betraying them. Frank Wisner, who uh, was in charge of, among other things, Gladio, and is also a character who shows up in the Dracula dossier because he married a girl from Romania and had a lot of very colorful personal, uh, uh, let's say, behavioral issues that developed. A guy named Peter Sikel, who was a guy on the site in Berlin who I know very little about. And, of course, yours and my hero, Robin, Edward Lansdale, the psychological warfare guy who um, uh, stopped the communists in the Philippines and stopped the communists in 1955 in Vietnam and then... They stopped listening to Edward R. Lansdale and everything went to hell, or at least that's Edward R. Lansdale's version. Well, it's also the version of Scott Anderson, and Lansdale is a guy... It would be the tragedy of no longer listening to Lansdale. Right, and uh, Scott Anderson may have the oldest force in the book, but any details about Frank Wisner and Lansdale are good. I love the sort of character of Edward Lansdale. He's the sort of... You talk about your historical characters. He's the M. He's the voice on the tape. He's the boss of my current superheroes game. He's the Nick Fury giving him instructions. So it's, it's going to be fun to see more fun about Lansdale. And then this guy, Sakel, I know nothing about, so he's going to be an interesting fellow. I'm sure on his own. So even though Anderson is trying to sort of make the inevitable career of all spies, optimism, desperation, failure into a, a, a personal arc instead of a institutional arc and make it into an institutional arc instead of a characteristic of all institutions everywhere spy or not spy, it's still going to contain a lot of uh, fun details and historical facts, I hope. And one more before we take a break. Uh, this is a big book of bad guys. <laughs> it's Fugitives, A History of Nazi Mercenaries During the Cold War by Danny Orbach. Yeah, this is an area that not a lot of people have written about. It's uh, wild. I mean, we're all familiar with Scorzani sort of uh, selling his sword to the high bidder, uh, working for Nasser working for Franco, working for various other forces. It turns out working for Mossad, <laughs> which is the best <laughs> reveal ever. It says mercenary right on right on the resume. Right. But there was tons of... Uh, and, and what is better pay for a mercenary than not being murdered by Mossad? That's what I ask you. But there was a lot of other uh, former Nazis that found jobs in the third world. They didn't all necessarily you know, go over and uh, work for the communists or for us. Although there's an awful lot about the Galen org in this, because I think that Orbach was not able to find as many other guys as he wanted to. But the notion that they took their skills, be they intelligence or torture or whatever, and sold them to the high bidder. The high bidder quite often was one of the new Arab states that also had reasons to be mad at Israel. So, uh, you know, fast friends fall on each other's neck, etc., but they wind up in all manner of battlefields and fronts over the Cold War. They make a great third force. 
before your um, uh, Fall of Delta Green game. And it's just an aspect of that, do I want to say ecology, that people don't really talk about a lot. So the fact of a, of a full-length book about it was more than enough to get me to splash out for a brand new book at Powell, something I don't often do. That's a rare honor. Yeah. Well, while everyone is reeling from, from that revelation, let's soak in a little commercial and then we'll come back with uh, the second half of your bookshelf. Delta Green Iconoclast, a campaign of horrors modern and ancient, brings a team of agents to a scene of terrors all too real. Mosul in 2016, held by the self-styled Islamic State in a reign of depraved brutality. From a small base at the Kirkuk airfield, the agents must research the horrors to come and prepare for a harrowing infiltration. ISIL fighters destroy mysterious artifacts. A Delta Green veteran goes rogue. Hidden myths permeate the Battle of Mosul. A demon god beckoned by a bloodthirsty cult. Plus terrifying supplementary material. Rules and guidelines for spying, crime, and backroom deals. New rituals. New tomes. And the dreadful details of a threat to suit all the evils of humanity. Available now in PDF. Or in glistening hardback. And we're back, and we're back to Russia, a little bit further back in history. The Spy Who Would Be Czar, The Mystery of Michael Golanowski and the Far-Right Underground by Kevin Coogan. Yeah, this was a guy who was a Polish intelligence officer, rose through the ranks, got access to all kind of secrets and knowledge, and uh, defected, came to America in 1961, revealed a lot of spy rings in America to the CIA, and then... Also, at some point, and I don't know at what point, decided that he was actually Tsarevich Alexei of Russia. See, I, I foolishly thought from the title that this was in Tsar times, but no. no this is in the <laughs> 60s and the 70s. And so, if you believe you're the Tsar, the people you hang out with are the white Russian exiles in America, and those guys, I don't mean to tell you, were part of the wild anti-communist, not quite underground, but cult movement that Lee Harvey Oswald's buddies were also buddies with. So this milieu is at least tenuously connectable to the Kennedy assassination, but is absolutely just a wild story that someone comes out of this spy world so broken and messed up that they think either people will believe this story or they think, my goodness, I get, I cut myself shaving again. I must be Alexei Romanov. It's a wild story. And I, I assume the mystery of Nikol, of Michael Golanevsky is, did he think he was Alexei? Because he was not. I'm just going to stop you right there. <laughs> Spoiler. Yeah. Well, he was Polish for one thing. Right. Yeah. Seems, you know, that would exclude that possibility. I would have thought so as well, but then I'm sure he did more research into it than I did. And I'm very much looking forward to that as a notion. And then, that sort of weird Demore and Schilt group in uh, Texas and uh, the South and the Midwest in the sixties is a, is a, just a wild group of weirdos. A whole layer of kooks and crackpots and mm -hmm. operators. And yep. yeah. So now we come to British intelligence and covert action by Jonathan Block and Patrick Fitzgerald. 
Uh, sounds kind of like an overview. It is not, in fact, or maybe it is. This is, I, I mentioned Philip Agee previously, beloved uh, communist CIA agent who published a big tell-all, and it turns out much later was doing so on a stipend from the KGB. These are the British versions of that guy. Jonathan Block and Patrick Fitzgerald were former um, uh, uh, intelligence officers, and they did a big tell-all about MI6 and about uh, British covert action. And uh, they got everyone very mad at them. There were D notices issued, and they said, well, we'll just put it out in America where your stupid D notices don't count. Right. Explain what a D notice is. A D notice is a do not publish notice that the uh, British government sends around to newspapers. In England, in the UK, they do not have freedom of the press. They have a lot of laws and uh, restrictions and things you're not allowed to say in the press. And if you've accidentally looked like you're going to say something, they send down a D notice, and then you're not allowed to publish it without being prosecuted. That held more weight prior to the publication of British Intelligence and Covert Action. Spycatcher is another one of the books that came out despite its D notice. So for book publishing, at least, the existence of Australian and American publishers has sort of offered you a go around. The British newspapers, British press, and I assume BBC and websites are still under something of the thumb of the British government, but and, and in the land of the ebook, that's even less right. of a yeah. And and we are we are seeing censorship regime in 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 Britain as we are everywhere corrode under the inevitable pressure of of technological change. But back in 1983, this was a big deal. And again, this is going to focus, I think, primarily on the 60s and 70s because it was written in 83. So again, it'll be a, a useful uh, thing, especially if you're running a Pisces based. Fall of Delta Green game. So the, the respectable books have excitable titles. The bombshells have vague overview titles. I just don't know where I am in guessing any of this stuff anymore. So you'll just have to tell me what Surprise Kill Vanish, The Secret History of CIA Paramilitary Armies, Operators, and Assassins by Annie Jacobson is like. This is about the CIA's Special Activities Division, which I think used to be called the Political Activities Division, which was, I guess, a little too honest, so they had to change it. But that's the CIA paramilitaries that are sent around to, you know, help the Bolivians kill Che Guevara, that kind of thing. They really blow up, obviously, in, in Vietnam, but they sort of exist before. They come out of the OSS, you know, had some combat units that were attached to them. It's that same tradition. And then, of course, during the War on Terror, they get, you know, blown up into a whole giant bureaucracy and uh, resource base so that the CIA's army is now probably larger than many NATO armies, I assume. Annie Jacobson is an interesting case. She's a real New York Times journalist. This uh, says it was a Pulitzer Prize finalist, or maybe Annie Jacobson was a Pulitzer Prize finalist, which I have no reason to doubt. But she is, how do I want to say, a credulous goof. She wrote a big book on Roswell that said, obviously it wasn't aliens, they were little people brainwashed by Stalin into thinking they were aliens and put on an experimental Soviet saucer craft or maybe a balloon. And this is the level of rigor that she brings to books on Roswell. Her book on Area 51 is likewise yawning with pits. So at the very least, she is going to be credulously repeating a CIA spin in this book and possibly making things up that suit her notion of what's going on. So while I would not call it a definitive history of the special activities division, it's probably more than close enough for gaming because obviously 
you know, a mind that will come up with mind-controlled Mongol uh, tiny people is not a mind that's going to flinch at the more colorful and exciting stories of CIA brouhaha. Well, that then makes it an excellent bridge between the Tradecraft Hut and the Liptony Hut, which the rest of the books, I think, reside in, starting with An American Demonology, Flying Saucers Over the White House by Colin Bennett. And this is about primarily two things. This is a biography of Edward J. Ruppelt, who was the first guy basically put in charge of investigating UFOs by the military. And then secondly, it is about the big 1952 UFOs over Washington flap, which was a gigantic deal in the UFO community. And I suppose for about a week in Washington, DC. And I don't think it's actually a demonology. There's no demons in it, but the author seems to have, you know, uh, have a foot in both the Nick Pope rivets and aliens camp and the Jacques Valley ultra terrestrials camp and his epigraph, which is what actually made me pick it up is from EMW Tilliard, a book called the Elizabethan world picture in studying Shakespeare's histories. I concluded the pictures of civil war and disorder. They present had no meaning apart from a background of order to judge them by. I found that the order I was describing was much more than political order. If political was always part of a larger cosmic order. I found further that the Elizabethans saw this single order under three aspects, a chain, a set of correspondences, and a dance. And anyone who's going to take E.M. Tilliard's attempt to understand Elizabethan mystical history and read it into the 1952 UFO flap over Washington is a guy whose book I'm happy to buy. (laughs) You are his demographic. I am his demo. Colin Bennett. And I, friends for life, no doubt. Speaking of things for whom you are the demo of, Dr. Mary's Monkey, How the Unsolved Murder of a Doctor, a Secret Laboratory in New Orleans, and Cancer-Causing Monkey Viruses are linked to Lee Harvey Oswald, The JFK Assassination, and Emerging Global Epidemics by Edward T. Haslam. And I think we're going to have to put aside the phenomenon of uh, subtitle growth for another segment. That, that's out of hand, man. Right. But h- how do all of those things fit together? Well, I'm going to say tendentiously. I mean, this <laughs> is one where the margins are right up to the bare edge of the book, except on the facing side, where the margins go right up to the cool picture of Lee Harvey Oswald's head. So that's exciting. This is about a lady named Mary Sherman, who apparently was a cancer researcher. In 1964, she was found dead in her apartment in New Orleans. She was stabbed and burned. And it's an unsolved homicide. And that seems like a thing that would be worth a book all by itself. But apparently, there is a ongoing conspiracy theory that the uh, bad guys behind the assassination of uh, Kennedy were using her research to build some sort of weaponizable cancer. And that somehow their chicanery was in danger of being un- uncovered by her. So that's why she had to go. And their chicanery, of course, is what Haslam is pursuing through innuendo and rumor through the rest of the book. I'm not a, this is a rare example of a conspiracy theory that I did not know existed. And the notion that there is a 372 page book on a conspiracy that I did not know existed, even with the occasionally large-ish type that these books have, it's not super large type, tied into a cr- true crime, tied into New Orleans, one of the great gameable cities. Tied in, of course, to the universal joint of conspiracy, the Kennedy assassination, 
there's no bottom to this well as far as I'm concerned. It, it's not easy to find new paranoia in the JFK space. Right. So. And this is and this is not just new in the JFK space. I believe it's also new in the vaccine conspiracy space, which may be why it is getting a publication or a republication now, uh, with that being so hot amongst the uh, the Alex Joneses and their ilk. And this is also autographed, my goodness. I just noticed that. Autographed by Ed Haslam in 2007, which is when it came out. So, big news for me. So now we come to one where the things are tipped in the subtitle. Egypt, Child of Atlantis, a radical interpretation of the origins of civilization by John S. Gordon. Were you aware of John S. Gordon before this? No, I was not aware of John S. Gordon. He seems to have basically the sort of standard Piri-Riese map, differential chronology, esoteric Nile. There's lots of cool charts. There's sacred geometry. Again, this is not going to be anything particularly new. This is going to be pretty old stuff, Schwaller de Lubitsch and on down. But, you know, it's got good diagrams. It was uh, very affordable. And uh, I like... I like every now and again you want to you want to you want to hear the hits, Robin. Right. Well, and, and if crackpotism is well diagrammed, that's a, that's right. a notch up. Now we come to an outing in the alternate exploration genre, uh, and that's the lost treasure of King Chuba, the evidence of Africans in America before Columbus by Frank Joseph. Yeah, there is a a, a long and honorable tradition of making up people crossing the Atlantic before Columbus. Uh, some of them actually turned out it did. Uh, I think that the case for the Basque fishermen, having been in Newfoundland since at the very least the uh, early 1400s, is probably about as made as it can be made without, you know, a, a diary uh, from a Basque fisherman saying, went to Newfoundland again, still yeah. boring. But the more exotic ones become more exciting. And Ivan Van Sertima, of course, famously has the notion that Mansa Musa sent a ship from Mali across the Atlantic. There's all manner of African explorations of America in the literature. This one is one that I've seen before, but Frank Joseph is a uh, sort of a, a reliable workhorse of a, uh, a Liptony writer. And so when he tackles the lost treasures of King Juba, you know that you're going to get a pretty good roundup of what everyone else has said, and maybe just a little, a little dusting of original, it's not research, but original tie togetherness that Frank Joseph provides. He's got another great book about Atlantis being in Wisconsin that I'm very fond of. I have a lot of time for Frank Joseph, although, of course, he's ridiculous. Right. Well, you can't see Atlantis yeah. from all the cheese curds. And then this is fun because King Juba is the king of Mauritania in North Africa. So technically, these are going to be Moors and Tuareg, possibly, not Sub-Saharan Africans. So it's a whole different thing. And also, it turns out they settled in downstate Illinois. So what more could you possibly want? A bunch of Mauritanians fleeing Caligula to set up in uh, downstate Illinois, which, while lovely and very far from Caligula, would not have been my first choice if I had the entire North American continent to sail through. But that's just, uh, you know, you've, you've got to make up stuff about the scratches you find where you find them, not about where you'd like them to be. Well, and, and points for innovation. Yeah, well, I mean, this again is tying into a pre-existing ludicrous uh, bunch of, of inscriptions, and I can't air quote inscriptions enough, that were dug up in downstate Illinois, uh, I think in the late 1800s, and someone said, I think these might be Libyan writing, or I think these might be Latin, but bad Latin. And then people just sort of make things up, and now you have to find some some Africans who got on a boat and uh, and disappeared. And that's where Frank Joseph and the King Juba theories go. And on a not dissimilar note, 
Mysterious Ancient America, an Investigation into the Enigmas of America's Prehistory by Paul Devereaux. Paul Devereaux is a top guy on your Earth Mysteries, your glyphs and your crop circles and your ley lines and your standing stones. He is one of your go-tos. And also, when he makes a book, there's a lot of very nice illustrations and art in it. And so I... I'm always I'm always very fond of a of a Paul Devereaux book. I have several. This one on ancient America is as it says, it's specifically about the sort of American mound cultures and long earthwork structures and whatnot. And then of course he's going to tie in his sort of, you know, various nonsensical preconditionings. And this is it, it's too short to be particularly super valuable on any given site. But again, for gaming purposes, this is almost what you want. Is sort of like, what can I say about the Anasazi? Good. Thank you, Paul Devereaux. Moving the, on. The thing you can throw to the players where right. you can find the basic nub of the point that you need to convey to the players. Mm-hmm. And speaking of playing the hits, we're going to close with Temples of the Grail, The Search for the World's Greatest Relic by John Matthews and Gareth Knight. And uh, John Matthews and Gareth Knight are both very, very big names. Gareth Knight more in the uh, history of magic specifically sort of um, post-Agrippan, Golden Dawny-type Western magic. And John Matthews, of course, is your go-to source for saying kindly, well-meant nonsense about King Arthur. One of the greats, one of the absolute titans of the field. And they've joined together. And believe it or not, Robin, this actually is a useful bit of scholarship because they've dug out English translations or made English translations of three obscure grail texts, uh, the Sauna de Nancé, uh, the later Titurel by Albrecht, and the Letter of Prester John. The well, Letter of Prester John has been translated a bunch of times, but the other two texts haven't. And I don't know if you know that in the Letter of Prester John, he mentions, by the way, I have the Holy Grail, if that's of interest <laughs> to you, the Pope. And so... It can be yours for the low, low price. For the low, low price. And so Matthews and Knight have translated these other two grail texts, and they're attempting to figure out stroke chin thoughtfully where could prester john have been keeping the grail and i i love i mean one of I, maybe the thing i love most in the whole field of elliptony is when you do actual research in actual things and then you desperately try to make sense out of errant nonsense whether it be medieval errant nonsense or modern day errant nonsense and you say well nope we cannot ignore the findings of the of the condom committee. We have to explain the Flatwoods monster, but we can't cheat. And or in this case, we have to find a nonsensical temple of the Grail that was made up by a medieval forger. Where could it have been? It's like finding, you know, where was Arkham? You know, it, it, it's that same degree of literary fun, or you know, how many calories did the Fellowship of the Ring consume on their walk? That kind of thing. Could they have carried all that food? That beautiful fracture point between rigor and nonsense. It's so much more fun than the sort of, well, could have been, would have been, I don't know. You got to make up your own mind. I'd love a, an elliptonist who, who sails into the teeth of the reel and just smashes themselves on those rocks. Hats off. And of course, John Matthews, like I say, a legend in the community. Gareth Knight, almost as famous. A million percent dependable if what you want is pablum about King Arthur. He's your guy. Well, now that we've uh, served up some some tasty pablum, I think it's time for us to uh, close up the bookshelf, allowing you to go and start uh, sorting your books into the regular sections from the boxes, which I'm 
I'm sure something you do immediately that you don't leave boxes. Oh, absolutely. Right. Around, right. Every, before. every, every book is immediately shelved according to a rigorous system that only I know in my mind palace. Right. Because otherwise people would suspect that you had the Necronomicon and there'd be break-ins and right. you, don't it, want you that. can't have that now. So on that note, it's time for us to uh, close up not only the bookshelf, but another episode of this here podcast, but we'll be back next week with more of the similar. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pograin Press. Askfagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep this podcast colors vivid by joining such splendid backers as... Gray St. Quentin. Jay Moore. Josh King. Keelan O'Hay. And Sean Stevenson. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our latest Mythos Rabbit design, Bunwich Horror. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Hite. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>